At least once a month, I challenge someone to start reading the Bible for the first time, and when I do, I often suggest they start with one of the biographies of Jesus, maybe, for example, Mark, the shortest of the biographies, or I'll recommend James. It's a little book, short book in the New Testament, just packed with practical advice. I do this kind of like the early win in gambling because I want them to have a good experience the first time they read the Bible. I believe the entire Bible is inspired, but I don't believe it's all equally useful, so I'd never recommend that someone start, say, in the book of Leviticus or Lamentations. But eventually, if you read the Bible long enough, you run into sections that may make sense, but seem to be of little practical value. This is especially true when talking about something that may have happened thousands of years ago and seems at first to have very little to do with the events that are going on today. Although sometimes, if you take just a little more time and dig a little deeper, you can find a connection, maybe something that's profoundly important that may have happened a long time ago and you realize, well, it's happening again today. That's why I often describe the Bible as surprisingly relevant. Today we're going to look at a section in the New Testament book of Ephesians. You've just heard it read. It was a a letter written to Christians in a region of the world, what now comprises modern-day Turkey, and there were a number of new churches there many of which uh, Paul had never met. He'd heard about them by reputation, but he didn't know who they were. And what he writes about in the section we're going to look at today is a controversy that was raging at the time, a conflict. And I think by the end, while this is a 2,000-year-old conflict, you'll see the relevance for us today. Mark just read it, but I want to read again verse 11, the first verse that he read. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which was done by the body in human hands. Now, to understand what Paul's talking about, you need to know two things. And the first of those is that when he talks about the uncircumcised and the circumcised, he's talking in code. In one sense, he's not being literal, although it is a literal reality. Instead, he's talking about two groups, Jews and Gentiles, separated by a series of rites and rituals that marked Jewish religious and cultural identity. And yes, uniquely and often offensive to those on the outside, they did circumcise their baby boys. Over time, it became a symbol for an entire system, which included rules around food and clothing as well as religious rituals. And for Jews, all of it was important. In fact, over time, these cultural and religious practices took on what the later New Testament writers, even Jesus, would consider exaggerated importance into the identity of the Jews as a people. They saw themselves as God's chosen people, and they looked down on outsiders who didn't share their way of life. Paul uses the word Gentiles to describe people who were non-Jews. Today, you'll sometimes hear Jews refer to non-Jews as goy or goyim. Goy is the Hebrew word for for people or nation, and Gentile is the Latin equivalent, and eventually Greek speakers adopted that word straight from Latin to use to describe non-Jews. Now, for Jews, it was not just a description. It was frequently used in a demeaning way. So over time, it led to a mutual distrust between these two groups of people, and it had been that way for a long time. The separation led to an awkward situation in the ancient Christian church. In the early years, almost all the Christians were Jews. When Peter, James, and John began to speak, they spoke first in Jerusalem, and the people who responded were largely culturally and religiously Jewish. They came to see Jesus as the long-promised Messiah. They understood that a relationship with God came not through practicing all these rituals, but through Jesus. 
and yet they continued to observe the law. It was just the way they'd grown up. It was what they did. They kept kosher. They continued to circumcise their baby boys and observe the religious holidays as they had before. Now, all of it took on new meaning because their Jewish identity continued to be a, a really great way of life, a way of life that they saw had significance that was fulfilled in a relationship with Jesus. But even at the very beginning, there were clues that something was going to change. And the first clue came 50 days after Jesus ascended into heaven. His disciples were gathered when suddenly a wind began to blow, something like fire appeared, and the disciples began speaking, not in their own native Aramaic, but in the languages of everyone who had gathered there. We call this experience Pentecost. And Pentecost changed the early Christian church. Not immediately, but over time, because it took on this symbolism, if not outright experience, that the good news about Jesus was not just for Jews. It was for everyone. Jews, Gentiles, Egyptians, Romans, Arabs, and many others. But at least for a few years, the early church was largely made up of Jews who had accepted Jesus. The daily rituals and cultural habits of Judaism persisted. In fact, most of them understood that Jesus was more than just for Jews, and yet they continued to practice these rituals. Jesus himself actually made this very clear the day he ascended into heaven when he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they knew Jesus was for everyone, Jew or Gentile. And this was a big deal. Many of them, though, had the expectation that every new Gentile believer should also become a little bit Jewish, at least begin to practice keeping kosher, circumcising baby boys, doing everything that a good Jew would do. The second thing we need to understand is that that Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth thing actually happened, and it really worked. Now, it was slow at first, but then more rapidly over the years, Gentiles started coming to Jesus. In AD 31, about a year after Jesus ascended into heaven, we have the first record of a conversion of a Gentile. Now, there were probably others before that, but this first story in Acts chapter 8, Luke tells us the face story of an Egyptian um, government official who'd come to Jerusalem on a spiritual pilgrimage. That, by the way, wasn't unique. People did that in those days. So this black man, many miles from his native land, heard the good news of Jesus from Philip, one of the disciples, and in dramatic fashion became a follower of Jesus. But the real turning point in this whole Jewish-Gentile thing came about six years later in AD 37. We hear the story in Acts chapter 10. And it tells the story of how Peter had, uh, that time, by the way, he was probably the most important leader in the early Christian church. And he had this vision from God that told him three different times the same thing, it's okay not to keep kosher. And that was a bombshell. A day earlier, there was somebody else who had a vision. This time it was a Roman commander named Cornelius. And Cornelius was told, Send some of your folks, get Peter so you can have a spiritual conversation. As soon as Peter finished with those three visions, these men, these soldiers, showed up at his home and said, Cornelius, our, our commander, would like to meet with you. So he agreed to go. Now, the significance of the story is not just that Cornelius became a follower of Christ, although he did. It's that Peter now understood that you didn't have to first become Jewish to become a Christian. And it was a bombshell, and it led to a dramatic growth in the number of Christians outside the Jewish world. However, not everyone was on board. About 11 years later, in AD 48, this controversy reached ahead. It seems that some of the Jewish believers, particularly in a place called Antioch, were telling the Gentile Christians, okay, now that you've become a Christian, you've got to become Jewish as well. You've got to practice all these rites and rituals. 
In Acts chapter 15, Luke tells us that Paul, who was now an important leader in the early Christian church, who saw his mission as telling the good news of Jesus to Gentiles, basically flipped a gasket. Actually, what it says in the text is he had a sharp dispute with those who were trying to make those Gentiles Jewish. He strenuously objected to the idea that non-Jewish believers needed to adopt Jewish ways. Everyone immediately recognized this was a big deal. It was an important issue to settle. So they all went to Jerusalem where they had a council. They basically met and discussed for hours, if not days. Peter, Paul, others discussed this. And finally, Peter made the decisive speech when he said, we should not make it difficult for Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus. Other than a few minor food restrictions, they set aside much of what cultural Judaism practiced, at least for those who were Gentiles. Many of the Jewish Christians continued to keep their rules and regulations. That was fine. But they now understood they couldn't require the same of these Gentiles who had, become, had come to Christ. It's now about 18 years, by the way, after Jesus ascended into heaven. And at that point, the number of Gentile Christians exploded. That didn't mean, though, that the conflict went completely away. In fact, three years later, Paul wrote an entire book in the Bible, the book of Galatians, to defend the decision that they'd made at that Jerusalem council. Even Peter had a lapse in the meantime, and Paul described how he kind of went after him. In the end, the number of Gentile Christians expanded rapidly. By the time Paul wrote Ephesians, which is about AD 61, it appears that the Gentiles, at least in the region of the world he's writing to, outnumbered the ethnic Jews. So even though the issue was theoretically settled about a dozen years before, the tensions remained. And since the numbers had been flipped, the Gentiles outnumbering the Jews, both groups were struggling. The Jews were struggling with the idea of giving up these things that had been important to them, and I think they were also struggling with giving up power. And the Gentiles were struggling with being sensitive to the unique cultural identity of those who grew up Jewish. And because of that tension, Paul decides here in this book of Ephesians to talk directly to both groups to make sure they understand the implications of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on this specific issue. So, in verse 12, he tells the Gentiles, first, he speaks to them. He says, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in heaven, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, with hope and without God in the world. So, simply, what he's telling them here is that before Jesus, you were spiritual outsiders, the Jews were God's people, and you didn't have any hope. By the way, many of them felt that way, even if they hadn't been told that. The gods of the Greek and Rome, Greeks and Romans failed to satisfy their spiritual hunger. So many came to Christ because they were seeking God. In fact, even during the lifetime of Jesus, there were Greeks, it says in John chapter 12, who came and wanted to meet him. They were spiritually hungry. It's not unlike what we're hearing now in the Muslim world, those who are unsatisfied with what Islam offers and have pursued Jesus, sometimes attracted by a dream or vision that points them to him. Paul goes on then to tell them, now, now that their outsider status is over, this is verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once uh, were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You're not excluded any longer. God who was once far is now near through the death of Jesus on the cross. And I don't know about you, but I've talked to people who often feel far from God. I felt far from God before I came to faith in Jesus. And what Paul is pointing out here is that through, through Jesus, we have immediate access to God. We're no longer separated by our sin, but we can approach him with confidence. And then 
Paul goes on to explain the significance, the consequences of this reconciliation with God for both groups. What he says here is that both groups can now have a relationship with God and can experience reconciliation with one another. Verses 14 and 15, for he himself is our peace who's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now he uses a couple of words here. He talks about a barrier and a wall. And Paul is actually thinking of a literal wall. It was in the temple in Jerusalem where there was a wall that separated two courtyards, an outer courtyard that was for everyone, Gentiles and Jews included, and then an inner court where only a Jew could go. Some years ago, archaeologists uncovered a notice in both Latin and Greek warning Gentiles to keep out of the inner court or they would be executed. This was a literal reminder of the division between Jew and Gentile. But Jesus has destroyed this wall, this barrier created by the rules and regulations that separated Jews and Gentiles. And then he does something even more dramatic. He made reconciliation between two groups possible. Now, I'm not going to read the verses on the screen, but just look at the words that I've highlighted where Paul talks about how God has created one new humanity out of two. He's made peace, one body, reconciling them, putting to death their hostility. He's bringing them together. Notice the way he moves from a negative descriptions to positive descriptions. He's not just interested in destroying the barrier, the wall between Jew and Gentile. He now brings them together in a new unified humanity. And that doesn't mean that the differences between these two groups are obliterated. Jews are Jews, Gentiles are Gentiles. But inequality before God is, is eliminated. Everyone is one in Christ. And then in verse 16... He says, this should bring an end to the hostilities that exist between Jews and Greeks. Now, realistically, that doesn't mean that just after Paul sent this letter, they all sing, started singing Kumbaya and, you know, all got along perfectly. But he gave them a vision for a new future, something to work toward, an ideal to strive for no matter what. And then in verses 19 through 20, Paul points out how this new international multi-ethnic interracial community will come together. And the point I want to make here is that he said that they are going to come together in Jesus Christ, in him. What Paul is saying is that outside of Christ, true reconciliation between people groups is impossible. But in Christ, it's not only possible, but required. Now, let's just get real for a moment because Paul's using one example. The uh, description between Jew and Gentile, the racial barrier that divided people in his day. We don't know for certain how this all worked out, my guess is that knowing human nature, that inspired by the words of Paul, they made some significant progress, but that the old divisions were so ingrained that it remained difficult to some degree for them to reconcile fully. Up to now, some of you may have tuned me out because I'm talking about something that was 3,000 or 2,000 years old, an ancient squabble between Jews and Gentiles. It's even less relevant than the 20th century conflict between the Hatfields and the McCoys. So what's going on and why is this remedy that Paul talks about so important for us today? Well, the reason is, is that while our conflict may not be Jew and Gentile, at least not maybe in this contemporary Minnesota culture, we do have our own conflicts. Conflicts between men and women, between North and South, between urban and suburban, between Democrat and Republican, between rich and poor, and even conflicts between one another, us versus them. So how do we bridge these conflicts? What makes what Paul said 2,000 years ago so relevant? 
Well, first, let me suggest what Paul suggests, and that is be reconciled to God in Christ. Paul's reminding us and them, them and us, that the first priority is that we need to be reconciled to God. Because of our stubborn, rebellious choices, we're alienated from God. The only way for us to be reconciled to God is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, Devin read the words from uh, chapter two, verses four and five, where Paul writes, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. That's sins. It is by grace you've been saved. So he's telling us up front, the first thing you need to do is be reconciled to God in Christ. And secondly, be reconciled to one another in Christ. So as a consequence of our rebellion against God, not only are we alienated from God, we're alienated from one another. That doesn't take us more than a moment to see that in the world around us. We build literal walls. And even when the Berlin Wall goes down, another wall somewhere else goes up. And worse, we construct barriers of race and color and caste and tribe and nation and class. We divide ourselves into political parties and into economic haves and have nots. We have personal animosity caused by pride, prejudice, jealousy, and an unwillingness to forgive that drives us apart. And even in the church of Jesus Christ, we divide into theological and denominational cliques, deciding who we think is in and out, sometimes based on the smallest of differences. How dare us? Why is it that we build walls that divide when Jesus died to reconcile us to God and to one another? To them and to us, Paul says, stop it. Remember, first, that God reached out to you in love and found you. He gave you his son, Jesus, who willingly went to death on the cross to reconcile you to God. And because of something he did, not because of what you've done, but because of his grace. And because of what he's done for us, we're to be reconciled to one another. But we can't do it on our own. We have to do it in and through the power of God's spirit in our lives. That's why in Christ we can develop deep bonds with those we might not normally connect with. It's our mutual love in Jesus that can make us connected, not a natural affinity. It's also why anytime we exclude someone from the church, the weak or the insignificant, those we see as useless or annoying, it may mean that we are also excluding Christ. Now, I don't know if it's obvious to you yet, but there's one division in our world that I've not yet mentioned, and frankly, it's the most hostile, divisive, and persistent division in our culture today, and it's the division between black and white. I don't want to pretend to have all or even a few of the answers. Personally, I'm on a journey of my own in this area, and I'm not there yet, but as a nation, we have a problem. And that while it's better than it once was, it is not as good as it ought to be. The history of black-white relations in this country is a national tragedy. Before the Civil War, there were four million African-Americans in this country, um, about 12, 13% of the population. Nearly all of them were slaves. We fought a national war, not over states' rights, but over the institution of slavery. After the war, great progress was made for a few years. Blacks were elected to local, state, and national office. There was a time when blacks and whites rode together in streetcars long before Rosa Parks in places like New Orleans. But in a few short years, laws began to be written in state legislatures across the nation, excluding blacks from much of civic life. Whites, upset by integration of blacks into social and political life, organized into paramilitary groups like the Ku Klux Klan, and hiding cowardly behind anonymity, killed or injured thousands of African Americans and their supporters in terrorist activities. And soon the social system throughout many parts of this country 
reverted to a manner of life that while not slavery in, in name, was slavery in function. And it would be, in many places, 80 years before change would come. Even in nearby Edina, in 1958, there was a sunset law in the books that excluded African Americans after the sun went down. Now what makes the barrier between black and white most troubling is that historically, both whites and blacks have been Christians. Paul tells us that two groups need not be divided, that in Christ they can be reconciled, first to God and then to one another, and that the power to see this become a reality is available to us all in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why here at City Church, we preach Christ. We preach Christ because without a relationship with him, we are estranged and alienated from God. And we also preach Christ because as noble as our intentions may be, it is impossible for us to be reconciled to one another if we don't have a relationship with him. Many in the secular world believe that the way to eliminate racism is to scold others, or others say it's education. But neither of these have worked. I believe only Jesus can help us bridge that gap. But we need to be obedient and be willing to reach across the divide. And I believe it's up to those of us who are white, those who are in the dominant culture, to take the first step. It doesn't mean it's the only step. It's a mutual thing. But relationships are the key here to breaking down the dividing walls of hostility in any conflict. Now, let me shift the conflicts just for a moment to give you an example. Recently, I was listening to a podcast about how Christians can understand Islam. And at the end of the podcast, the interviewer, who was a Christian but came from a Muslim background, was asked by his guest, what was one thing a Christian could do to get a handle and understand this, this challenge, this, this conflict? And he said, make a Muslim friend. And I was convicted because I don't have a Muslim friend. And so that may well be for me a personal goal in 2018. So what would happen if we were able to bridge some of the divides that exist in our culture? Democrat, Republican, rich and poor, urbanite, urban and suburban, Viking and Packer, and black and white. Earlier, Mark read not just from Ephesians chapter two, but also from the first part of Ephesians chapter three. We haven't had time today to look at Ephesians three, but it's a section in which Paul marvels at the unique role he was privileged to play in sharing good news with the Gentiles. Even more, he was grateful to have the chance to see this new spiritual family made up of Jews and Gentiles grow so large. And then he reflects on how amazing it is and how amazing it could be if this diverse group of people could achieve the unity that he thought possible. And in verses 10 and 13, he writes this. He says, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What he's talking about here, by the way, is this one united spiritual family will encourage the authorities in the heavenly realms. What he's talking about here is angels. But he could have just as easily said, this would be an example to the world that we live in. A unified church made up of all sorts of different people would be a visual model of the good news of Jesus, and it could well attract many to faith in him. But if we fail to reconcile to one another, we may well lose our integrity and our effectiveness in reaching the world with the good news of Jesus. Now, early on today, I traced the history of the early Christian church through the book of Acts. And I want to conclude by going back to one more story from Acts, and this time from Acts chapter 6. The first church in Jerusalem was made up almost exclusively of Jews, but it was a multilingual congregation. 
There were Hebraic-speaking Jews, or Jews who spoke Hebrew, and there were also Greek-speaking Jews. Judaism had spread throughout the ancient world, and some of those Greek-speaking Jews who'd lost their ability to speak Hebrew had moved back to Jerusalem. But the problem that existed was there was an economic recession, and so some, especially widows, were going hungry. So the church tried to fill the gap, but a problem surfaced. The Greek-speaking widows were not getting their fair share, and they complained. The leaders of the church came together, and they, hatched, they came up with a plan. They assigned seven men to be, basically, to run a food shelf, to make certain that both the Hebraic and the Greek-speaking widows got enough food. And who did they choose? Seven Greek-speaking men. So what they recognized is that they believed in that way both groups would be equally served. And what happened? In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a number of the priests became obedient to the faith. In other words, by equally valuing both groups, by pursuing a strategy of unity and inclusion, the church grew in effectiveness. May that be true in our day. Let's pray. Father, may we first be reconciled to you. Understanding our guilt, our disobedience, our rebellion against you. Recognizing that we do not have a relationship with you except through faith in your son Jesus and by his grace. And Father then, let us recognize that the implications of that in our lives is that we need to be reconciled to one another. May you do that too. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.